0: If you had to pick out just one food to eat every day for a year, what would you pick? With all the variety of foods, it's a tough question to ask, and I'm sure there might be something that comes to mind right away, a favorite food of yours, but to eat it every day for a year, would it still be your favorite? Would it still be your favorite three months in? What about six months in? Or how about a year? How long until you would be sick of that food and it would no longer be your favorite After the 2018 baseball season, Minnesota Twins outfielder Byron Buxton put on 21 pounds of muscle. It's a lot of muscle to put on in a couple of months. But he did this in hopes that having some extra muscle on his body would pad him and insulate him and protect his body from injury. While being interviewed during spring training, he was talking about how hard he worked. He was lifting weights, lifting weights for five hours a day and eating 20 ounces of steak a day. When I heard that, I thought, Yeah, tell me again how hard your life is. Got to eat 20 ounces of steak today. (laughs) Until I went to a restaurant and ordered an 8-ounce steak. And I had some sides with it, and I couldn't even finish that 8-ounce steak. Now, don't get me wrong, the steak was delicious, but there came a point where eating another bite of steak was no longer enjoyable. It was just work. And I still took home leftovers. I suddenly realized that eating 20 ounces of steak every single day was a bit much. Eating a variety of foods keeps every meal an adventure or a culinary experience. There, now you can sound highfalutin. But having to eat the same thing every day gets old. It did for the Israelites. When they first left Egypt, they wished that they never left Egypt because of the food. They left all the food that they had there and they missed it. And now they're wandering here in the wilderness, not sure where their next meal would come from. And they complained. And as Kevin read, the Lord provided. He provided quail for them in the evening, and then every morning he provided manna for them. But it wasn't long before that food became not good enough for them either. In our text this morning, there's grumbling and complaining all over again. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Numbers chapter 11. So read verses 4 through 23, and as we read this passage, we'll hear the complaints of the people. We'll hear the complaints of Moses, and then the response of the Lord. I invite you to stand with me out of respect for God's word if you're able to. Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 23. Again, reading in Jesus' name. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of Bedelium. The people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar and boil it in the pot and make cakes with it. And its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families. Each man at the doorway of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, "'Why have you been so hard on your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight, that you have laid the burden of all this people on me?' Was it I who conceived all this people?' Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. So if you are going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the Spirit who is upon you and will put him upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it all alone. Say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat, for we were well off in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I am are 600,000 on foot. And you have said, I will give them meat so that they may eat for a whole month. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? Then the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Father God, these are your words, and we would come before you this morning recognizing that your word is true. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the eyes of faith to see that your word comes true to us still today as well. Help us to stand on your truth and to believe your truth. When various complaints or groanings or mumblings come up in our own hearts and lives, Father, we pray that you would turn our attention to you and your word once again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. You would think that by now the Israelites would have learned to not to complain. But when they complain, it seems that they get what they want. They get God's attention, and then he acts. First it was their slavery in Egypt, and then being trapped like rats at the Red Sea, and then having no food or water, as Kevin read, and even complaining about their leaders... And the Lord, all the while, had graciously responded and miraculously provided for each of these complaints. And he is providing for his people. But his people were hard to please. Whatever good gifts the Lord provided for them never seemed to be enough. And so finally, the Lord says enough is enough. And at the beginning of Numbers 11, we read that God sent fire outside the camp to singe the camp to teach the people a lesson because of their complaining. The people catch the hint, and they present their request to Moses, saying, Moses, please pray for us. We don't mean to do this. We know that this is because of our actions, so please pray for us that it would stop. And they repent of it. Moses prays, and the fires are extinguished for now. And then we read in verse 4, a familiar sound begins to be heard mumbling strike up again, the rabble started, or some translations say uh, the mixed congregation or the mixed people, the ones who were alloyed with Israel, the Egyptians, the foreigners, who weren't just from descendants of Jacob, who had either married, in it, married the Israelites in Egypt, or they were Egyptians who left with the Israelites when the Israelites left. But they're earwormed, and they put this familiar sound, this familiar complaint into their ears, So that they can't get it out of their minds, and they join in. And they begin to ask the question, to whine and complain, to say, who will give us meat to eat? They remembered back to when they were in Egypt. They remembered all the food that they had. They had fish, they had cucumbers, they had melons, the variety that they had. They had leeks and onions and garlic, all the tasty foods. And all the flavors, all the spices, all the herbs they could ask for. That was living. And they wish... That they were able to experiment once again with food and find different concoctions of herbs and spices to take something plain and make it delectable. Now all they had to work with was manna. It was ground up and it was used to make cakes. They did the best that they could with it, but it wasn't anything fancy. It fell every morning. It fed them. It sustained them. It nourished them. And it was miraculous. Still, it wasn't like the Egyptian food. It was second class. It wasn't as good, at least in the eyes of the people. Moses catches wind of the clamoring and the weeping throughout the camp. The people are crying at their tents. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, verse 10 says. And Moses has had enough. Moses joins in, only that he doesn't complain about the food. Instead, he complains about his lot in life. Can you blame him? God, I didn't ask to lead these people. I didn't bring these people out. When you asked me to serve you, I didn't want to. I tried to get out of it. I knew this was going to happen. And yet here I am. Why would you put this burden on me? Get me out of here. Kill me if you have mercy and love for me. Is the extent or my translation of what, not translation, my summary of what Moses is saying here. Why have you been so hard on your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? It's an understandable complaint, and it's enough to break any one of us. Moses reminds the Lord that this wasn't his idea, and he asks that where in the world he is supposed to get meat for all these people. Imagine how annoying and grating it would be to have been Moses, listening to all these grown men, women and children, complaining about what's on the menu again. They should be thankful they have food in front of them, but instead they complain and they gripe. You can expect it from children, but from grown men? Come on, it gets a little old. That'd be enough to make the most patient person you can think of to lose their patience. You can imagine the chanting of the people saying, Give us meat that we may eat. Give us meat that we may eat. Give us meat that we may eat. You guys didn't join in with me. That was, that was your cue there. You guys can have meat this for lunch if it's on the menu. But can you really blame Moses for being at the end of his rope? For day in and day out having to deal with these ungrateful people. And then Moses complains about something else. He says, Why does he have to be the only one who can deal with the people's problems? There are 600,000 fighting men here, and they're bringing their complaints to me. The women and children are bringing their complaints to me. Why are they always chewing my ear off? Can't somebody else... Listen to them. Why can't they fend for themselves or find somebody else to bother with all their complaining? Moses goes so far as to ask the Lord again, just kill me now. Give me your mercy and just take me out of here rather than continue to deal with these people by himself. The Lord has other plans. And rather than taking Moses' life, he tells him to get 70 respected men to stand with him and that God would come and he would put his spirit on these 70 men. And Moses wouldn't bear the burdens of the people all by himself anymore. The Lord tells him, tomorrow you would see the hand of the Lord at work. Tomorrow, Moses, you and all the people will eat. Tomorrow, Moses, you will have other leaders with you. Not just for tomorrow, but for the next day and the next day and the next day. And God says you're going to be eating meat for a whole month. Until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. There's an interesting picture to think of. They're going to have so much meat, they're not going to know what to do with it all. Moses must not have gotten the point that God was saying, because he still thinks that he's going to have to be the one to provide the meat for all the people. He asks, where am I supposed to get all this meat, Lord? It's a legitimate question. As you're wandering through the desert, where are you going to get meat? Are you going to slaughter all of the flocks that you're carrying with you? Well, we kind of need those flocks. We can't just get rid of them all just so that we can eat meat. Are we supposed to drain the sea of all their fish to feed these people for a month straight? Where is all this food supposed to come from? And how can we ever have enough? It was a logistical nightmare. It's hard enough to get food ready for your own family. But here Moses is in charge of getting food ready for a literal army and their families. Moses is looking to the limited resources that he has at his disposal. There are the flocks and the herds that the people brought out of Egypt, but again, they need them. So how in the world was he supposed to feed the people? In typical fashion, the Lord answers with a pointed question, is the Lord's power limited? And then he says this to Moses, Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Even Moses, who had seen the hand of the Lord at work over and over and over again, and sees it every morning as the manna is provided, is limiting what the Lord could do. The God who breathed stars into creation, and creation into existence out of nothing. How is this same God supposed to provide food for all these people? The God who provided manna every morning out of nothing. How was he supposed to provide enough meat for all of these people? How would he provide Moses with other leaders? How would he do it? Moses is left asking the question that we often ask ourselves too. How, God? How? I don't understand. I don't see how you can do it. How can you do this? The rest of the chapter answers that question for you, but I want to pause here. I want to pause here in the tension of the promise and of the provision where Moses is at this day as he hears what the Lord says and he's still asking the question, where is it supposed to come from? God, how are you going to provide this? And see how this tension is something that we experience here in this, in our lives today. Amazed at how much we still resemble these Israelites today. Even though we've read their story, we know their story, and yet we still do the exact same things that they do. How much we have to learn. Does anyone here ever ask God the question, how? I don't understand. Moses describes for us the miraculous provision of the Lord in verses 7 through 9. The Israelites are wandering through the wilderness and for some, from some supernatural source, manna appears for the people out of nowhere to eat every morning. I would assume that some of the kids growing up with this provision just kind of assume that's where it comes from. Man, it just comes from the ground. That's normal. That's how nature works. Just like some city kids might think that food comes from the grocery store. Somehow it spontaneously appears there on the shelves. Or maybe it comes from food trucks. But here we know that food comes from the ground because we've seen it. You've probably grown it yourself. But for people who've only grown up seeing this manna every morning, they begin to think this is where it comes from. And the miraculous provision had become commonplace. It's just how the world worked. At first, it was special and exciting, and people even gathered more than enough. They gathered more than enough because they weren't sure if it was going to come the next day. But eventually, it would become plain, ordinary, and boring resented even. The people viewed it it as being subpar. It didn't compare to the food that they had in Egypt. They even went so far again to resent this food. The Israelites aren't the only ones who scorn the gracious provision of God. We often do it ourselves, don't we? The manna appeared with the dew in the mornings to nourish the Israelites physically, but also spiritually as well, as we read from John chapter 6. And as Kevin read this morning from Exodus 16, recognizing that as the Lord provided the food, he said, and you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. It's meant to nourish them physically and spiritually as they reflected on the provision of God. God has chosen other ways to nourish us physically and spiritually. They may not seem as supernatural or as exciting as what happened in the Old Testament, but they are just as every bit miraculous. God has given to us his word. And through his word, he works to create and sustain our faith. When was the last time that you picked up God's word and you couldn't put it down? Can't remember? Me neither. It's become ordinary. It's become plain, hasn't it? It's just another... Thing that's there always weighing over our head thinking, you know, I should probably pick that up and read it someday. There are more exciting things to learn about. There are more exciting things to read. There are more exciting and maybe even we tell ourselves more important things to be done. Or maybe you've, you're tempted to view the church service as something ordinary. It's nothing too exciting. We don't have any bells or whistles or fancy light shows or anything like that. It's predictable. You know what's going to come. And yet, God is at work here through his word, nourishing our souls, calling us to repentance and faith and giving to us his grace. It's nothing fancy or catchy. It's ordinary. Yet God is at work. Do we view the church as a miraculous provision of God? Or is the church just something that we maybe go to once in a while when we feel like worshiping God? Is it ordinary? Is it non-essential? Or is it the place where God gives to us his grace? It's a miraculous provision of God. Just because it's ordinary doesn't make it any less miraculous. And what about the congregation? Not just the church servant, but service, but the congregation, the gathering of believers who gather around the word and sacrament here. Is it just another ordinary assembly of people? Another ordinary assembly of sinners who come together? Or is it a miracle of God knitting souls together to be the body of Christ in which he is the head? Do we view it as a gathering of sinners or as the pure, spotless, forgiven, holy bride of Christ? Even though it appears to be ordinary on the surface or to our own eyes, it's still the gracious and miraculous provision of God for you It's easy to be discontent with ordinary things. It's easy to be discontent with these miraculous things that are disguised as just everyday occurrences that aren't so fancy. But again, just because it seems ordinary to us doesn't make it any less miraculous. Moses asks the question that often sounds a lot like us in verses 21 through 22. After the Lord has promised to provide an abundance of meat for all the Israelites for a whole month, Moses gets caught up in asking the question, how? How, God? How are you supposed to provide this meat for us? Where would it come from? And the Lord doesn't answer his question, how? He just promises him that he was going to do it. He tells him, sit back and watch. We often get caught up with the question of how. Call it curiosity or call it a desire to know how things work. We want to know how the Lord will act. And if it's reasonable to us and if it makes sense to us, if we can understand it, then we're willing to believe it and we can go with it, rather than go out on a limb and make ourselves look like fools. The Lord doesn't answer the question, how, though. He just does it. Think of all the times in Scripture, God gives instructions that don't make any sense, any sense whatsoever, and yet the Lord does what he has promised to do. How do you create light out of nothing? How do you create creation out of nothing? How can simply raising a staff dry up a path for about two million people to walk through on dry land? How can raising up a staff cause the sun to stop falling? How does reducing your army to a handful of people, 300 people, give you the victory over an innumerous army? How does walking around a city and then blowing trumpets and yelling and screaming at the top of your lungs bring a city's walls down to rubble? It doesn't make any sense. But God has said, Do this. And He does it. And His word is accomplished. We ask the question, How? as if we need to know the answer, How? And there are plenty more examples of this in the Old Testament and even the New Testament, too. How does Lazarus rise from the dead? I don't know. But Christ says, Lazarus, come forth, and He responds. How does Jesus rise from the dead? I don't know, but he does. His word says it's true. How does a little child come to faith in Christ through the waters of baptism? I don't know exactly how that works, but God promises it through his word that in baptism we are clothed with Christ. And in baptism he delivers a forgiveness of sins through the promise of his word. How is it that by eating a little tasteless wafer and a little vial of wine... Confer to us the forgiveness of sins. I don't know. But God says, Jesus says, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And so we take it at his word. We take Christ at his word and we receive these gifts. Even though they become ordinary to us, yet they are still the miraculous provision of God for the sustaining and the creating of our faith, the nurturing of our faith. (laughs) How does God make us new creations where he no longer sees our sinful deeds and all these bad things that we do, but he sees us as he sees Christ? When we still experience it in this life, we are sinners and also saints. I don't know, but God's word declares it. The answer how is not given to us, but the promise of God is there. And so in this life, as we wait between the promise and the provision, we graciously and we firmly hold fast to God's word, this ordinary, simple, black-and-white word for us, which doesn't always seem so exciting, and yet through this supernatural book, God works in your hearts and in your lives, and he is at work in us here today. We aren't given the explanation for the hows in life, only that God has promised it. And so we would do well, just as Moses, to dwell on this question that the Lord asks Moses in verse 23. Is the Lord's power limited? Is the Lord's hand too short? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. And the mundane and ordinary aspects of life through which God has promised to act, he provides for us. Even if all we see is common and ordinary, the Lord's word remains true. And his promises still stand firm and we can trust in this provision. Even when we don't know or understand how he provides, the Lord accomplishes it. Is the Lord's hand too short? Is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that it is true. We pray, Lord, that as we go through this life and as things seem to be ordinary sometimes, and Father, because things seem so ordinary and seem so commonplace for us, God, oftentimes we might disdain these things, we might think less of them or belittle them. Help us not to do that, Lord. Help us to stand firm on your word. Help us to appreciate the fact that we have your word and that you work through your word, that your word does what you say it does. Lord, help us to stand firmly in faith and trust your word in all things, knowing, Lord, that your hand is not too short, that your arm is not lacking in any power but all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. We praise you for that, Lord. Help us, Father, when we seem to walk by the eyes of our flesh and we just see things ordinary, help us to walk by the eyes of faith. Lord, trusting and believing in you each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.